Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Welcome to the latest episode of the Hello Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman. I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing? Doing well, Dan. Um, we're uh, starting to get into some fall weather here and baseball's almost over and football has gotten started. At least most teams are aware of that. So, yeah, we're uh, we're, we're heading into a new sports season. We're, we're, we're recording this on a Wednesday and we're coming off a very difficult weekend for uh, New York football teams. And uh, say no more. Everybody knows what we're talking about now. And forever um but it's uh, it's good it's good uh, you know september october is always a good t- time of year in sports between the nba or sorry the nba between uh baseball uh, heading into its postseason pennant races even though there isn't much in the way of pennant races these days but that's a different conversation and uh obviously the nfl season starting so it's a lot of fun and we we try uh to the extent that we can on our show to at least somewhat try and have the episodes uh sort of uh match up with uh with what's going on at sports in the year so uh th- this is one of those that i think will be a little bit uh timely and it was funny because andrew had uh had sent me a message uh, a couple months ago he said that he thought that a good idea for an episode would be the 1948 cleveland indians it's been 75 years since they won the world series the last world series as a matter of fact in the history of the cleveland franchise and I had actually a little bit before that, you know, a few months before, as I was just thinking about various anniversaries, because we do what, you know, anniversary shows on this podcast. We did uh, 1998 a couple of episodes ago. We're going to do 1923 a little bit later in the year. We've done others in the past, 1986, 1941, 1920. And I had, I had looked at 1948 and, and I didn't know that it necessarily was one that merited a whole uh you know 75 years ago here's everything in sports in 1948 but i thought it was interesting because it was the uh the championship uh the last championship for the indians it was the third of four straight aafc titles for the cleveland browns and the browns were undefeated that year they were 11 and 0 and both teams had more than a half dozen Hall of Famers or at least a half dozen Hall of Famers on the roster. And so I thought it was just really interesting. And it's sort of it, it's it's rare to have an MLB team and a professional football team win the title in the same year. You, you, know, you had the Giants and the Mets in 86. You had uh, the Patriots and the Red Sox in uh, in 2004. Uh, going way back, you had the Lions and the Tigers. Is that the only time it happened. 
the Patriots win in third. No, the Patriots didn't win in 13. That was still in their interregnum, right? So what about 18? The Red Sox win in 18? Yeah, okay, you're right. So the Red Sox and the Patriots, yeah, because 18 was when the Patriots beat the <laughs> beat the Rams in that punt fest Super Bowl. Yeah, so I mean, it it does happen. I mean, it, but I, I'm trying to think. I mean, it, it obviously it hasn't happened in Chicago. It happened in New York, I guess, in '56 with the Giants and the Yankees. '86, New York Giants and the Mets. Um, I, I off the top of my head, no no other ones really uh, really immediately sort of come to mind. Oakland won their three World Series in the early '70s, and then and then you know the the Raiders Super Bowl was '76. I guess uh, I guess if you want to be a little bit liberal with the definition of 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 a city, you could look at the Bay Area in '89 with the 49ers and the the Oakland A's, but as far as the, you know, the, the two outdoor sports and, and particularly, you know, in this case and in other cases too, the two teams playing in the same, you know, the same park, the same, the same arena stadium, it's not, it, you know, it happens, but it doesn't happen a ton. I mean, I guess if you want to go way back, I know the 27 giants that want playing in the polo grounds, won the NFL championship, but as far as like, you know, Recently, that doesn't happen all that much, nor nor would you expect it to. But that was something else that made this kind of interesting to me. And there, there are some other similarities between the teams that maybe we'll get to in a minute. So, I guess if we're going to uh, to do this, we should start with the the first team, which would chronologically, which would be the Indians. Um, and like you mentioned, this is actually still the last Indians championship. It's funny because for years. They were the the long running top five around them gradually evaporated and not not necessarily in order, but for years it was the Cubs were the longest drought, 1908. They won in 2016 against the Indians. The Red Sox were always actually the White Sox were number two, 1917. They were the first ones off the list with um they were the first ones off the list winning in, or the second ones off the list winning in 05. And then Red Sox, 1918, they won in 04. The Indians were fourth. There was obviously that big jump between uh, 1918 and 1948 on the list. And then right behind them was the San Francisco slash New York Giants, who had last won in 1954, and then they won in 2010. So I don't know who second on the list is now of franchises that are like, you know, have been around. I feel like it might be the Pirates, to be honest, in 1979. Now, that doesn't factor in teams that, you know, have never won it or, uh, you know, have been, but I think of the original 16, they're the ones with the, the next longest drought uh, would be the So anyway, it's, you know, the, the Indians had a few teams ahead of them and they all have since won that. And now they sort of occupy an island by themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is a really, uh, really colorful team, and it's owned by a gentleman by the name of Bill Veck, who probably is most famous in Major League Baseball for some of his antics as owner a few years later of the St. Louis Browns. He had a tendency to you see a lot of players jumping around, general managers jumping around, certainly managers jumping around, but it's rare for an owner to jump around and Vec, he 
he owned the the Indians in the late 1940s, ended up having to sell them as the result of a divorce settlement in about 1950. He then went on to own the St. Louis Browns, who, uh, yeah, and I believe he was the last owner of the St. Louis Browns before he sold the team to a group that brought them to Baltimore. Then he was the owner of the uh the uh the Chicago White Sox in the late 1950s the Gogo White Sox who uh who made the World Series in 1959 and played against the Los Angeles Dodgers and lost he actually is responsible for two different uh tenures as White Sox owner he he owns them in the fifties and the early sixties, and then has to sell them for self for health reasons. And then they actually bring them back in the mid 1970s. So some of the things that you may have heard of Bill Vec doing uh, during his time as an owner, he was the, uh, the father or the um, founder or whatever you want to call it of the infamous disco demolition night in the late 1970s, which was, for some unknown reason, coupled with 10 cent beer night and did not go well. It was led to a, I don't know if a riot is the right word or just sort of a drunken disaster that led to the White Sox forfeiting the game. It was, he was the, during his time with St. Louis, he invented ballpark manager day where fans would be given signs that would say, yes, no, no, pull out the pitcher, steal, that type of thing. And the actual manager was uh, placed in the dugout in a uh, an easy chair with a with a bathrobe and a pair of slippers. He very infamously sent up Eddie Goodell, who was a midget, uh, uh, to bat for the St. Louis Browns, I believe, in 1951. Goodell um, walked on four pitches and... The Major League Baseball then passed a rule saying you could not use midgets in Major League games. And Vex's response was, well, what about Phil Rizzuto? Is he a tall, regular person or a, or is he a short, regular person or a tall midget? Um, I, I don't think they responded to that. A lot of those antics kind of started after he left the Indians. The other thing that he's famous for, or at least well known for, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it- so that in order for us not to all to entirely just paint him as a clown. Oh, no, he, definitely he had a wasn't. couple of he had a couple of visionary. He, if he had had his druthers, he would have been the first. He, he would have moved the St. Louis Browns to the West Coast if it had been up to him. And he would have been the first owner out West before the Dodgers and Giants. But the Yankees owners blocked that deal. Um, he also was at the forefront, and this will come up a lot as we talk about this team, he was one of the most aggressive owners in terms of bringing in black players and wanted to do it years before he was able to do it. And just to sort of, we've talked about this before, but the button up his time as the Browns owner, his goal as the owner of the Browns was going to be to force, or before he decided to move west, which didn't happen, he, he knew that St. Louis couldn't support two teams anymore. And as Absurd as it seems now, his goal was to force the Cardinals out of St. Louis and have the Browns be this only team in St. Louis. And again, it seems absurd, but you know, he the Cardinals own the ball or the Browns own the ballpark. 
by the late 40s, early 50s, the Cardinals had started to fall on hard times. And he knew the Cardinals' ownership was in financial straits and might have a chance to actually force them out. But the Cardinals' ownership, instead of selling it to somebody who wanted to move them somewhere, sold to the Bush family who were not moving out of St. Louis. They were just going to back the team. And he knew right away that his goose was cooked, tried to move the team out to California, was unsuccessful. The owners basically spearheaded by the Yankees owners basically forced him into a sale to the team, the group, the ownership group that moved them to Baltimore. So again, obviously did some promotional things and maybe some of them were a little absurd or wacky, but um, also a guy who it wasn't all gimmicks, shall we say? Absolutely not. Uh, A few things on the integration front. First of all, that is one parallel between these two teams, the Indians and the Browns, is that both were on the forefront of integrating or reintegrating their respective sports. There's sort of a story out there. Real quick, let me just clarify, because I kind of made this possibly confusing. The Cleveland Browns you're talking about, because I was just talking about him, the owner of the St. Louis Browns. Yeah. I'm not trying to be funny, just to clarify that. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, exactly. He Both the Cleveland Browns, the football team, which we'll talk about in the second half, and the Cleveland Indians, which we're talking about now, were were not only integrated their respective, they didn't integrate, but they were they were a major player in uh, reintegrating their respective sports, but also did so with Hall of Fame guys for the Braves, or sorry, for the Indians, it's Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. For the Browns, it's Bill Willis and um, and Marion Motley. There's a story out there that Vec had a plan to buy the Phillies in the early 40s and stock the team with major with Negro League players, you know, Paige Gibson, Oscar Charleston, those guys and Cool Papa Bell. And sort of that was scuttled either by the commissioner or by his fellow owners. I think researchers have sort of come to different conclusions as to how serious he was with that plan. But you're right in that he was definitely a very early hero or a very early champion, I should say, of integration he was also an amputee he had served uh, during world war ii he was not wounded but he suffered an infection while while serving in world war ii and sort of tried his damnedest not to have his leg amputated but eventually had to undergo a, a couple of different surgeries where where parts of his leg were amputated so he was a he was an amputee based based on his time with the war and he was a guy also who grew up in baseball he his father had been an executive with the Chicago Cubs. He was somebody who was a fan of the Chicago Cubs, later owned minor league teams where he learned a lot of the things that he would later put into practice in the majors about promotion. And he purchases the uh, the Cleveland Indian team uh, in the aftermath. I believe it's in the aftermath of World War II. Yeah, it's in 1946. He sold his interest in the AAA Milwaukee Brewers, and he becomes the owner of the Cleveland Indians, moves them permanently to Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which is a huge stadium um, with a capacity of of well over 85,000. They had been sort of splitting games between there and a, a, um, I'm sorry, I should, I meant to say 70. It's the capacity is about, um, about uh, 78,000 for baseball. It's about 81,000 for football. He, they they had been splitting time between another park known as League Park, which was a much smaller sort of twenty thousand 
Seat Park. He moves them permanently to Municipal Stadium in in the aftermath <laughs> of World War II and uh, starts trying to build a winner. I think basically what they would do is once they started playing, you know, the league park had been their traditional home. Then when they did this split thing, I think I've read that basically weekends and when the Yankees were in town, they would play at the bigger park at Municipal Park. And then every other during the week and against any other team, they would play. Uh, they would play at League Park. So yeah, the only time they would play there midweek was 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 with the Yankees. Um, so you said he takes over just to kind of go over the very briefly the history that they won the World Series in 1920, kind of a transition year that we've talked about. Um, and then second place finish in 21, 26. You know, they're rarely they don't finish like seventh or eighth ever. That would, those spots were usually reserved for Washington and uh St. Louis, to be honest, a lot of the time. And in um, the 40s, Connie Mack's uh, athletics team is down there, too. Really by, yeah, really by the early 30s, yeah. So 1940, they finish in second. They're just a game out of first place. And then the rest of the 40s, they're in between fourth and sixth place. They finish 80 and 74 in 1947, the year before we're going to talk about. So, you know, not certainly not the worst team, not even, you know, they're hovering right around that fourth, fifth spot, which back then was a big distinction. But, um, you know, let's call it in the 30s and 40s. The American League was pretty much the Yankees and then everybody else. And they're managed by a guy by the name of Lou Boudreau, who is in the Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Fame shortstop, a guy who has who has been the manager of the Cleveland Indians basically for his entire career. He takes over as manager at uh, 24 years of age in 1942. He actually takes over for another uh, sh- former shortstop by the name of Roger Peckinpah, who was a Yankee and a teammate of Babe Ruth's in the early days, who had actually been the manager um, previously um, and was replaced by Walter Johnson in the early 30s. And so Boudreau, who wins the batting title in 1944, and they're, they're sort of, they're starting to get maybe a little bit better. Like you said, most years they're hovering around about fourth or fifth place and Boudreaux. And I don't know, I didn't find any details on this, but Boudreaux does not serve in the war. I don't know. Maybe he has dependents or something like that, but he, he plays and manages Cleveland all the way through world war two. I did see this. I got to pull it up. It was, it was not a dependent thing. It was a, um, he was four F for some reason. Oh, there, here we go. So, uh, Boudreaux had played and managed the Indians throughout World War II. Playing basketball had put a strain on Boudreaux's ankles that turned into arthritis, which classified him as 4F and thus ineligible for military service. He had played basketball in college uh, at Illinois. So, and actually, it's funny, there's a little bit of a clash in the 47 season between Boudreaux and Vec, and Boudreaux is almost traded to the St. Louis Browns, but the fans find out there's sort of this public uproar and Vec relents. There was also talk that maybe Vec might try and sort of buy Boudreaux out of his managing contract saying, look, you know, we want you to play, but we don't want you to continue to manage. Boudreaux says that if he can't manage, he's not going to play. 
And and Boudreaux is kind of a, you know, he's a heck of a player. He's an eight-time All-Star at shortstop. Like I said, he's in the Hall of Fame. He wins the batting title in 44. He's, he's the AL MVP in the year we're talking about in 1948. He's also responsible, or one of the guys responsible, for stopping Joe DiMaggio's hit streak in 1941 in Cleveland at 56 games when he, along with a third baseman uh, on the uh, Indians by the name of Ken Keltner, makes some really good fielding plays in the infield on DiMaggio would-be hits in 1941. So the guy, the guy, you know, he's not an all-time great, maybe, but he's definitely a legit Hall of Famer, a very, very good player. And so after some back and forth in the 47 offseason, the they decide that they're going to keep Boudreaux around after he's almost traded to St. Louis and they go into the 48 season with Boudreaux in place as manager for, I guess this would be the, the seventh year in a row. Do we want to talk a little bit sort of about some of the other stars on this team or where do we want to take this next? So I think we should get into some of the stars. I was just about to say we should get into into the roster and stuff. I think we should start with Larry Doby just to set the stage of this team. We alluded to it a little bit, but Larry Doby, you know, when I was a kid, I always heard of Larry Doby was the first player, you know, first black player in the American League. I guess I never realized just how soon after Jackie Robinson that was. And also as a kid, I didn't necessarily know the well, why was that such a big deal? You know what I mean? That he was, but it was a totally, it was almost, they were very separate in terms of, he was playing in front of different cities and different fans for the first time, you know, maybe where Robinson had, you know, it's, it's not like, Oh, it was the same teams they were playing over and over again. So in 1947, when do you remember when Doby came up? It was um, in June. I have it. I have it as eight weeks after Jackie Robinson had started with the, Dodgers and as a lot of people probably know Robinson started with Brooklyn on uh, April 15th 1947 so eight weeks would probably be in that that early to mid-June time frame so he's the um he's the the second black player in baseball he breaks the color barrier in the American League certainly you know not the historical on the historical scale as Jackie Robinson but you know not that long after I think it's safe to say that opinions on race relations in the country hadn't changed all that much in eight weeks. He probably got very similar to um, this as July 47 is when he came up. Yep. July um, 5th. Yep. And he didn't have like Robinson had the, um, the year in the minors. Yeah. Doby came straight from the Negro leagues to came straight from the Negro leagues to the Indians directly without, you know, Robinson was signed in 1940. I guess it was like December of 45 actually. Right. And then yes. Played yeah. 1946 in, in, in Montreal and then 47 with the Dodgers. Um, so he was when player Lubadro actually, I walked down the line, stuck out my hand, and this was in 47, and very few hands came back in return. Most of the ones that did were cold fish handshakes, along with a look that said, you don't belong here. Four of Doby's teammates did not shake his hand, and of those who two turned their backs to Doby when he tried to introduce themselves. Uh, during warm-ups, Doby languished for minutes while his teammates interacted with one another, not until Joe Gordon, who I'm assuming we'll talk about in a minute, asked Doby to play catch with him, was Doby given the chance to engage, Gordon befriended Doby and became one of his closest friends on the team, or at least that's the version that I have here. 
Yeah, I, what I haven't, there's a number of really good books about this team or this season or whatever, is that Joe Gordon, who was recently come to the team himself, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, along with Bob Lemon, who's another future Hall of Famer, a pitcher, are the two guys who really sort of greet Dobie warmly. Dobie had been playing for the Newark Eagles in the uh, Negro Leagues. Newark Eagles, and he's a, he's a born and raised Jersey, you know, New York City area guy. Uh, the the um the Eagles are owned by Abe and Effa Manley and Effa Manley who um it might be a name that's familiar to some baseball fans she is the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown she was the sort of the 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 day to day owner of the Newark Eagles uh, of the Negro Leagues in the 1940s and one of the differences between Bill Veck and Branch Rickey and I'd really love to do a do an episode one day about sort of not integration but like not necessarily baseball integration like on the field because that's in a lot of ways been done to death but there's so much as far as the business interactions between the various entities involved the teams the league the teams in the Negro Leagues Branch Rickey had a very dim view of the Negro leagues. He thought that it was, they were run by racketeers. He made no bones about basically just stealing their players. Vec was a little different. Vec wanted to compensate teams like the Newark Eagles, whose players he was taking. So there's a difference there between the way Vec goes about integration and the way branch Ricky goes about it. Dobie comes up. They don't really have a position for him. They, they put him at first base, for a while, replacing a guy by the name of Eddie Robinson, who we've mentioned Eddie Robinson, and we actually did him on an in memoriam. Eddie Robinson is a guy who, in his career, plays in seven plays with seven different American League teams, including the Yankees for a couple of years. Actually, lives to uh, almost the age of 101. Eddie Robinson. Here's an interesting thought about Eddie Robinson. He was replaced temporarily at first base by the first pl- black player in the uh, American League. By the time of his death, he has his own podcast. So that is a guy. <laughs> that is a guy who who sees a lot of American history. But he's replaced by Dobie briefly in '47. Dobie does not have a good year up with the Indians in 1947. He appears in 29 games. He has 33 plate appearances. How many games does he actually start here? Let me let me just look that up here. It's very it's very limited. Just just bear with me here for one second. Um, oh, he actually doesn't. St- oh, no, I'm sorry. Hold on here. This is this is okay. He actually only starts one game. I'm sorry. So he, he really doesn't replace Robinson in any meaningful way at all. Even though maybe he's viewed as the as a temporary replacement for for Eddie Robinson. Here are his numbers. Um, he has 32 at bats, 33 plate appearances. He bats 156, doesn't have any home runs, two RBIs, only one, five hits, one extra base hit. So he really struggles not only to be accepted by some of his teammates, but he also struggles at the plate in the 1947 season with Cleveland. So we mentioned Joe Gordon um, should we go to him now and talk about uh, him as the starting shortstop of this 1948 Indians team? 
we should not talk about him as the starting shortstop. We should talk about him as the starting second baseman because that's what he was. Oh, edit that out. <laughs> I will. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned Joe Gordon, and um, Joe Gordon had been with the Yankees. He had come up to the Yankees in 1938. He had replaced another Hall of Famer in Tony Lazari, who uh, had been with the team going back to the, the Ruth years. And he had replaced Gordon. He had replaced um, Lazari at second base and been been on the tail end of the Gehrig uh, DiMaggio teams and then been with the team through the 1940s. He uh, misses two years for World War II in 1944 and 1945 uh, Joe Gordon wins the American League MVP award in 1942 with the Yankees with a 322 batting average 18 home runs and 103 RBIs do you know what's so crazy about this 1942 uh American League uh MVP race I feel like there was somebody who clearly had a great year that it should have gone to is that the case Ted Williams won the triple crown that year yeah, that's I think I feel like we talked about that. I was going to say I thought Ted Williams did something, but then in my head, I'm like, oh, no, was he over? Was he fighting by then? But um, yeah, that was very clearly because they didn't like him. Right. He was fighting. It was with the sports writers, not with yeah, not, not fighting, with, not, not with the Axis powers. powers yeah. Yes. yeah. Ted Williams, uh, 36 home runs, 137 RBIs, both best in the majors that year. And then 356 batting average. So. If anybody thinks, number one, that writers aren't vindictive, number two, that writers being vindictive is a new thing, then just please just be aware of both of those facts. By the the post-war era, Gordon is starting to get sort of disgruntled with the Yankees front office, which if you know anything about the Yankees front office of the mid-1940s, and we've talked a little bit about the, that whole situation a little bit, you can understand why he was He's over 30, but Vec and Boudreaux, they take a chance on him. They trade him. They trade for him prior to the 47 season. Uh, they trade away a pitcher by the name of Allie Reynolds, uh, super chief, who, in addition to being on the Indians, is also part American Indian. And he Reynolds, for his part, goes on to uh, win six World Series with the Yankees and is considered sort of a borderline Hall of Famer. In fact, the last time that there was a, a veterans committee ballot for that era two years ago, the year that Gil Hodges and Buck O'Neill and some of those guys got in the year that, that we went, Allie Reynolds was one of the players on that. I think it was 12 or 16 person ballot. So that's the trade. They acquire a hall of fame, second baseman in Joe Gordon, and they pair him with the manager, the player manager, Lou Boudreau, and they have a, a hall of fame, double play combination going into the 47 and then the 48 season. So you have him. We mentioned, you know, we talked about Boudreaux. That's your middle infield. We talked about Larry Doby. Um, you mentioned Eddie Robinson, the first baseman, Keltner, the third baseman, the guy who robbed DiMaggio seven years earlier, kind of completes the, uh, the infield um, outfield. I see Dale Mitchell was uh, one of the other outfielders who started 140 games that year. And then you know, eight of the nine position players started at least 120 games. And in most cases, many, many more than that for the team. So remarkable consistency, except for, I guess, that last outfield spot seems like it had a different uh, a bit of 
rotation in there between um, they list Thurman Tucker as the outfielder in the starting lineup officially, but Allie Clark got nearly as many, actually more plate appearances. Hank Edwards got quite a few plate appearances, but um, the rest of the lineup really uh, remarkably consistent. Dale Mitchell, who we should tell a little story about Dale Mitchell. You, you know what Dale Mitchell is probably best known for. Uh, do I? He was the last out of Don Larson's perfect game. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I can't say I would have made that connection immediately. So spends most of his career with the Indians, goes to the Brooklyn Dodgers midway through the 56 season and ends up uh, pinch hitting for the pitcher in the with two outs in the bottom of the ninth against uh, Don Larson in the 56 World Series. This is a story that I just found out a couple of months ago when I went to the Yogi Berra documentary. Yogi Berra's wife was pregnant in the stands. And when Dale Mitchell came up, Don Larson, you know, facing Don Larson with Yogi Berra as the catcher, she says, if Larson gets him out, I will name our child, our son, I think maybe they knew it was a boy at that point, I will name our son Dale. And sure enough, <laughs> she names their son Dale, and Dale Berra is the one of the Berra boys who makes it to the major leagues himself. Actually, plays for the Yankees for a while in the eighties. So, little story there about about Why Dale. Did you name the kid after Don Larson? I don't know the answer to that. Instead of the last guy who got house, I, I, maybe she didn't like the name Don. I have no idea. So, okay, um, I wonder what she would have named him if he got on base. <laughs> So, and then you have the pitching staff and, mm -hmm. you know, first off, you got Bob Lemon, who's a Hall of Fame pitcher. He's actually originally a position player. You mentioned that he is one of the guys who greets Larry Doby warmly along with Gordon in the 19, the 1947 season. Uh, he, he had actually originally been a position player and he had actually been up very briefly with the Indians prior to the war. And here's a story that I didn't realize any player who'd been in the majors uh, before the war who had served in the war was entitled to 30 days on the major league roster in 1946 <laughs> once they came back, which was, I guess, kind of a nice thing to do. and. The Indians are in New York City uh, playing the Yankees early May of 46. And Bill Dickey, who's not, actually go ahead. I'm sorry. Not to be funny, but like if a guy got his leg blown off in the war, was he still entitled to 30 days on the roster? I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted to play. But I mean, if he would have gotten paid for those 30 days. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe there was some provision to, you know, exempt the, the clearly physically unable. I, I don't know the answer to that question, okay. but it's, it's an interesting. They all had to go. They all had to go to the senators or something like that. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, so early May, we've talked a little bit before about how 40 and again, not to keep bringing up the Yankees, but Joe McCarthy's quit the Yankees and they, uh, Bill Dickey is acting as manager. The Indians pull into New York and Bill Dickey pulls Boudreaux aside and suggests that they turned, that they turned Bob Lemon into a pitcher because Lemon had been, I guess he was pitching 
a little bit uh, during World War II, and um, Dickey had been serving in Hawaii with Lemon, uh, maybe managing the team or something during World War II. So they convert Lemon into a pitcher, and he goes on to have a Hall of Fame career. So right off the bat, you got a Hall of Fame owner in Vec, and you got Hall of Famers in Boudreaux as player manager, Joe Gordon, who they just traded for, Bob Lemon, and Larry Doby, who uh, has just integrated the American League. And then, well, I guess technically you have two more, but we'll talk about Satchel Page in a minute. And then you got Bob Feller. And I feel like we should spend a couple minutes on Bob Feller because Bob Feller is like as close as you can come to a sports celebrity in sort of the early major media days of the 1940s. Bob Feller is really that guy. And and also he he's probably the the best and the fastest pitcher to date when he comes up to the Indians uh, from he never never pitches a day in the major leagues. Or I'm sorry, never pitches a day in the minor leagues. They sign him at the age of 17 in 1936. Doesn't really come into his own until about, I guess you could say, 38. Uh, when he leads the major league in strikeouts as a 19 year old. And then he really comes into his own in 1939, 24 and nine, 24 complete games, 246 strikeouts, 1940. He wins the pitching triple crown, 27 wins, 2.61 ERA, 261 leads the majors in strikeouts in the four years prior to the war leads the majors in wins in the two years prior to the war in 1938 as a 19 year old on the very last day of the season with Hank Greenberg uh, coming in to face Cleveland with 58 home runs and a chance to beat or tie Babe Ruth's record only 11 years after Ruth said it uh, Feller has a, one of the all time great pitching performances against Hank Greenberg. I believe he strikes him out twice and sets a brand new record for American league strikeouts. Let me, let me pull up that, that game. Yeah. Complete game uh, for Feller. He strikes out 18 players, which is a record that, that survives, I think for decades, he strikes out Greenberg. Let me see how many times he strikes out Greenberg in that game. He strikes out Greenberg twice. In that game, he strikes out one guy five times. That guy must have felt great. And so Feller is a phenom. He, when he graduates from high school, NBC radio broadcasts Bob Feller's graduation on national radio from coast to coast. He is one of the first uh, major league players to enroll in the military and listen to the military after the Pearl Harbor bombing. He misses three full seasons, 42, 43, and 44 in while serving in World War II. He comes back and starts nine games late in the season in 45. Has a another really, really good season in 46, 26 wins, 348 strikeouts, which is God, if that's not close to the, I got to look up and see what the single season record is, but that's got to be damn close to it. So this is a guy, 1946, 1947. He's kind of considered one of the greatest pitchers of all time. 
Yeah, and I I just wanted to the three years before the war, and this was pre Cy Young Award, but he finishes third, second, and third in the American League MVP. In 39, he's behind DiMaggio and Jimmy Fox. In 40, he's behind Greenberg. And then in 41, he's behind DiMaggio, the year of the 56-game hitting streak. And then he's behind Ted Williams, who hit 400 that year. So, you know, he is, before losing basically four years of his career to World War II, when you factor in 45, he barely pitched, you know, after he came back. So 46, he, he doesn't pick up right where he left off, but he's still a very, very you know, dominant pitcher, especially in 46 and 47, you know, and by the time we get to the 48 season, he's only 29, but he's been in the league, not for 13 years, but since 1936, the vast majority of guys that 1946 with 348 strikeouts, that's 19th all time for a single season. The vast majority of guys ahead of him on this list are guys from the 1800s. Uh, Nolan Ryan had 383 in 1973. Sandy Koufax, 382 in 65. Randy Johnson had a couple of really good seasons, 372 one year and 364 another year. You got a Nolan Ryan season in there, but the vast majority of these guys are from the the either the 19th or the very early 20th century so there was also a year adam dunn struck out at least that many times <laughs> they should count that they should put the hitters in with the pitcher <laughs> if you're that bad wouldn't it be great if like they had presented him it's like you had more strikeouts this year than sandy koufax in 1962 <laughs> sorry go ahead but he is starting to struggle a little bit feller and uh He's actually, by the time the the 48 season rolls around, he's actually getting booed a little bit. And part of that was um, it was something to do with the All-Star game. I think, I, I don't remember the specifics of the story, but I think he declined to go to an All-Star game or something in, in 48. But he's he is really starting to get, starting to get booed a little bit for his, his poor performance. I'm just trying to find the, yeah, he, he Feller withdrew from the All-Star game in 48. He he's the, this history of the Indians described him as quote throwing home run balls and losing games. They uh they start to resent him. He's making $80,000, which is one of the highest salaries in the major leagues. He also made a ton of money with with barnstorming and it says here um Feller was booed whenever he had rough going on the mound. It was psychological booing, but it sounded like the same old inverted huzzah. I, I don't know what that's referring to, but I think I, I don't know. That's something to do with the fact that, you know, he's making this much money and, and he's, he's getting booed. So Feller Feller's best years, unfortunately, are really sort of behind him by 48. He, he doesn't really he, guy sticks around for a long time. He only has one more 20 game win season in 1951. He, 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 um, he's on the world series team in 54, but he's kind of like a fourth or a fifth starter. So at 29 years of age and after three, almost four full years serving in the military feller who would have 300 wins, he's got 266 wins all time. He, he is an all time great. He kind of like Ted Williams or even DiMaggio would be considered even more of an all time great, but, is kind of he, he's hurt a little bit by the war and he's 
like I said, he, he's starting to get booed a little bit uh, in the in the 48 season, both for snubbing the All-Star game and for his on-the-field performance. And before we get into sort of the chronology of the year, he did still go 19 and 15 with a 3.56 ERA. So he still did have a year that most guys would kill to have, uh, but and pitched 299 innings. But compared to the you know the years he had immediately before the war, you don't want to say he's a shell of himself, but he's not the you know he's dropped off significantly from those years. And the other Hall of Famer that we should mention is Hank Greenberg, who is not on the team as a player. He'd been acquired in the offseason with the intention that he might play a little bit, but he ends up deciding instead to sort of transition into a front office role with the team. So that could have been even one more Hall of Famer, Hank Greenberg, on the team. So, And we should also mention that Bob Hope is a part owner of the Cleveland Indians, uh, just as his good friend Bing Crosby is a part owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and that leads to many a comedy sketch between the two in the 40s and early 50s. So, yeah, it's a it's it's an exciting pennant race this year. It goes down to the last game of the year. It's close. Um, Indians have some some interesting moments during the season. So I've got a couple things I wanted to just sort of mention, but I'll I'll let you uh, mention something first if you have anything. So I just a couple of things that August 3rd. There's four teams that are even for first in the American League. So half of the league has the exact same record on August 3rd in the race. Um, by September 9th, they've fallen to 80 and 53. They're in third place. They're four and a half back with 21 left. Um, by September 14th, with only 15 games left, they're still four back and in third place at 84 and 55. They then go on a seven game win streak to tie it up uh, in the with eight games left to play. And before we get to sort of the last day of the year, I'll, I'll give it back to you and you can go over some stuff. But um, I just figured I'd, I'd sort of the chronology it was a really close race. They were behind in mid-September. They went on a nice tear and uh, put themselves in position right at the end. So. So one of the things that Avec does during the year is the signing of Satchel Page, the all-time great pitcher of the Negro Leagues, most notably with the Kansas City Monarchs, but uh, really with, with a number of teams in, in the Negro Leagues throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s. A, a man who, who we'll have to do an episode where maybe we talk more about Satchel Page, but a man of sort of larger than life. He's a character, a man of, of indiscriminate age uh, who it, baseball reference. It lists him as having been 41 during the 1948 season. But I mean, he could just have easily have been, you know, in his mid to late forties or, or possibly potentially younger, most likely older. They signed page. Part of the reason that they signed page is for the gate, you know, Bill, Bill Vec, always a showman, Part of the reason is because they people think that maybe he wants another black player to go with Doby. And part of the reason is that they need pitching because Feller is struggling and they, they you know, like you said, they're in a very tight pennant race. Page makes his debut with the Indians on July 9th, 1948, which is, you know, right in the thick of this pennant race, probably either just before or just after 
the all-star base all-star break and he's really the only and i'm sure there's a few others you could point to but when you talk about the greats of the negro league sort of the the, the pantheon negro league guys josh gibson oscar charleston cool papa bell buck leonard um smoky joe williams you know those type of guys the only one who really ever makes it to the major leagues especially the only one who really makes it for more than just a very brief sort of cup of coffee type of thing is satchel page and it's very good that this was able to happen because page is on not unfortunately but page is another one who People talk about, but it, it, it's almost like Yogi Berra or or Casey Stangle, where they talk about what he did for two minutes and then it devolves into folk tales, many of which are entertaining, some of which probably have some serious truth to them. Um, and sort of, and again, I understand the reasons for this, or I, you know, I'm familiar with the reasons for this, but a lot of the Negro leagues. Yeah, there were records and yeah, there were stats, but then there's a lot of, I don't want to say legend, but sort of, comp. you don't know where the story ends and where the storytelling begins, you know what I mean? So it's almost good, or it is good, and unfortunately, obviously, that it happened when he was 42 years old, but he got to, even at 40, come up and prove factually what he was capable of even then, even briefly, you know what I mean? Like a lot of those other guys, you mentioned Gibson and, and bell and all the, the sort of guys associated with the thirties and forties in the Negro leagues. We know the Negro leagues were a high level of play, but it's very hard to fully contextualize from a baseball standpoint. So I think it's good that we have even him at his tail end there's something tangible to grab onto or more tangible, I guess. You know what I mean? Does that make does what I'm saying make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And he will talk a little bit. He, you can overstate it. You can say that, well, you know, they wouldn't have won the 48 pennant if it wasn't for him. Hard to say, although given the fact that they won it in a one game playoff, even sort of the fact that he was able to swing a couple of games would have really helped them win the pennant but yeah he is a key contributor on this team this is really sort of his only true i hate to use this word but his only really true good major league season he's back with cleveland in 49 for i guess what you, what could best be called the a mediocre season in relief then he's back i think he's back in black baseball in 50 and then he's got a a couple of okay years in the the um the early 50s with St. Louis and then comes back and pitches a game for the Kansas City Athletics in 1965 at the age of what was he 59 then 58 you know with another sort of um bombastic showman of an owner in Charles Finley but yeah he definitely he contributes um they sign him and a lot of people in the press uh, are critical. The Sporting News writes that, quote, to sign a hurler at Page's age is to demean the standards of baseball in the big circuits. And somebody says, uh, if Page were white, he would not have drawn a second thought from Vec. 
Vec responds, well, if he was white, he would have been in the major league 20 years ago and the conversation wouldn't have taken place, which I thought was sort of a perfect, perfect response. Uh, Page, he says, I signed Page because I think I can help us, uh, not because we need publicity. Although I do think that it is worth noting that Page very much does help with selling tickets for the Indians. And he's only the fourth. He's only the fourth black player in baseball. You have Robinson and Campanella in Brooklyn and then Larry Doby and him. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Well, there's a guy, Dan Bankhead. He might be the third, not Campanella. Dan Bankhead oh, okay. appeared for the, but he's he's in the top like five or six. There's no question about it. One ticket agent uh, located in Akron, Ohio said, I had 800 tickets for a game. They were moving like molasses. Then it's announced that Page will pitch. In 22 minutes, in just 22 minutes, I sold out the 800. I sent for another 700. People lined up outside the place. By noon Monday, those were gone. So I hurried to Cleveland Monday night. They gave me what they could, 600, and then those were gone. In Akron, Ohio, all they needed to say was Page is going to pitch, and they sell 2,200 tickets for uh, for this one specific game that he's talking about. Page um, obviously is different than Robinson or Dopey or some of these other early integrated integrationist you know players who are integrating the game he brings a reputation and a um he brings a reputation and a a way of doing things that he can get away with that some of these younger guys you know these younger black players are not not really able to get away with he's got uh naked nicknames for some of his teams he calls bob feller bob rapid he calls Lou Boudreau <laughs> Mr. Lou, which is not particularly creative. And he calls Bill Vec uh, Burhead. And so very different personality, especially than Dobie. Yeah. And, 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 you know, then Robinson and, and really anybody that they've seen so far. Um, you know, and there's always been sort of the question of how much was he playing that up for the press? Um, you know, sort of the, the countryfied, you know, gangly, you know, a guy with the sayings and things like that. But um, on top of everything else, there's no doubt that he knew how to market himself in an era when a lot of players were not concerned with that, especially, let's be honest, black players who, you know, especially when they came into white baseball were, you know, told to behave. Really, when any black athlete came into white sports at that time, was told to behave a certain way and not rile people up. And not that Page was riling people up, but he also was being... You know, he was he was not avoiding being himself. He was avoiding red meat because that angries up the blood. But he was not avoiding, you know, the spotlight or the limelight, I guess. Makes his debut on July 9th after an overworked Bob Lemon uh, pitches four innings and give up, gives up four runs. And let me just see if I can get the the stat line from from Page's very first game with the with the Cleveland Indians. He pitches uh two innings, uh gives up two hits, no runs. Uh it's another six days before he appears in another game in relief. Eventually he does become a starter. How many games does he start for the team on the year? I see uh but 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 one two, three, four, five, six. It looks like about seven, 
seven or eight games for the team on the year ends up with a six and one record, including um, a couple of shutouts. So uh, one of which I want to want to highlight a little bit more in a second. So, yeah, I mean, he's not, this is not an otherworldly season for Satchel page, but he, he puts in a really, really good performance, especially for a guy facing what he's facing at his age of, you know, and, is a key part of this um this American League uh, pennant winning or this World Series winning team in the in- with the Indians in 1948. I have a couple of other things. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Pitching in a race too. There's a difference between, you know, getting called up or I keep saying called up, you know what I mean? Like getting brought into major league baseball, you know, if he'd been playing for a seventh place team that was only using him to sell tickets and you know, wasn't worried about whether he won or whether the team won. They were using him to try to win an extremely tight race against other teams. You know, you figure if it was a four team race, at least half the games are against the teams they're in a race with or, you know, close to half the games are against teams are in races. So they didn't just have the luxury of throwing him out there so they could sell tickets to the black fans and, you know, get some publicity. They needed him to pitch effectively, or he probably would, wouldn't. They wouldn't have kept throwing him out there just because it meant good attendance if he was ineffective. So mid-August, they uh, they go. Uh, they win eight games in a row uh, from August twelfth to August twentieth, and in on August fifteenth, uh, they're they're in Chicago to play the White Sox. Bob Feller wins the first game of the season of the. Uh, doubleheader six to two and then Bob Lemon his fellow Bob fellow Hall of Famer uh, shuts the White Sox out eight to nothing uh, in the second game it's Lemon's uh, seventh shutout of the season and his um, his his 16th win of the season uh, two days later they're playing the lowly St. Louis Browns with flags flying at half staff to honor Babe Ruth who had just passed away mm. and a pitcher by the name of Gene Bearden shuts out the White Sox eight to nothing to uh, get the second straight shutout and deliver a four, uh, 12th win it's his fourth shutout of the year and then the following game following game a journeyman pitcher by the name of Sam Zoldak uh, blacks blanks the Browns uh, three to nothing, and Allie Clark uh, had uh, scores all three runs in that game. And so then the final day on August twentieth, uh, they they defeat the White Sox one nothing, and the crowd at um, Municipal Stadium is seventy eight thousand eight hundred and thirty two. The starting pitcher for the Indians is Satchel Paige, who had pitched another shutout. So this is what now you know. Four shutouts, five counting this game that they've pitched basically in in a little over a week. Record attendance and Satchel Page shuts out the St. Louis Browns uh, one to nothing. It is the fourth shutout. The team sets a record, I believe, for um, for consecutive scoreless innings uh, somewhere. I think it's somewhere in the 40s because Feller had shut out the the White Sox uh, during the last several innings of of his victory, uh, you know, in the first game of that doubleheader. The overall shutout uh, run is 39 innings. It's the first time there have been four straight complete game shutouts uh, for the Indians uh, since 1903. Unfortunately, both the lose the winning streak and the 
scoreless streak, the shutout streak, all of it ends the following day with a three to two defeat to the White Sox, but anchored by Lemon, Feller, and at least for a while, Page, three Hall of Famers. This is a really, really good Indians pitching staff. The other thing that we should mention is that Satchel Page is, I'm sorry, is that Bob Feller, after sort of a mediocre 1948, really comes alive in uh, September of 48, in the last month of the season. He, in eight starts in September, he allows nine earned runs, never once, uh, he never takes a loss in any of his eight starts, and he has won back the affection of the Cleveland fans. They end up uh, going into the last game of the season, up a game on Boston, but get, uh, but Boston wins in the last game of the season, the Indians lose. And so they go into a one game playoff in 1948 uh, to between the Indians and the White Sox to decide the AL pennant. So they go into the last weekend of the year and the Yankees are still involved in it too. The Yankees are playing the Red Sox and on October 1st, they, or excuse me, on October 2nd, Cleveland wins. So they clinch at least a tie and then Boston beats the Yankees, which eliminates the Yankees with one day left in the season. So Cleveland can do no worse than a, a, a one game playoff. The Yankees who have just been eliminated, understandably do not go out and, uh, give the Red Sox, uh, I guess with a chance to end the Red Sox season, they don't deliver. So the Red Sox win the, uh, Indians lose. There'd been a coin toss earlier in the week or about a week earlier. Presumably the Yankees would have been involved too, if they were still in it that late, but the Red Sox had won the coin toss, uh, the week before as to if there is a game one fifty five, who will host it. So that sets the stage for Monday, October the 4th, 1948 at Fenway Park. Uh, the Boston Braves. I actually never I didn't I guess I didn't until just now connect that. But we were uh, we were one one game away from a possibility of a uh, subway Boston's whatever they would have called it in uh, in Boston in 1948. Yeah. And there there never was one when there were two team in, teams in Boston. Nor was there ever one in Philly when they had two teams. I guess in 44, you had two in St. You had St. Louis, right? You had the Cardinals against the Browns. You had one in Chicago in 06 between the White Sox and the Cubs. And there's still, I mean, could be one still to this day in Chicago. But outside of New York, there's been very few. And I guess if you want to count the the, the Bay Area series uh, of 89 when there was the earthquake, there have been very few of these same city series, but you're right. You almost had one in Boston in 48. And as somebody who went to school, you know, on that campus, those two ballparks, those are walking distance. That's like probably just about a mile. And I, I mean, I guess the well, Yankee stadium, the polo grounds are close, but that's across the river. That would have been a really close series geographically. Yeah, the Polo Grounds and Yankee Stadium is walking distance, though, or was walking distance. There was a bridge right there. And the way I know it was walking distance is John McGraw made his team do that in <laughs> 1923. But um, the uh, 
Yeah. So anyway, before we get to that, even though it didn't happen, so there's nothing to get to. They play that game. You know, it's not a tremendously suspenseful game. Each team scores a run in the first inning. The Indians explode for four runs in the fourth to give them a five to one lead. They end up winning the game eight to three. Gene Bearden is the winner. It's his 20th win of the season. Um, Boudreaux, Keltner, both Homer for the uh, for the Indians, and they are headed to their first World Series in 28 years. The most famous aspect of that one game playoff is that Joe McCarthy, who had won. What did he win? I think seven World Series with the Yankees, mm-hmm. seven World Series and 10 pennants or eight, whatever, whatever he won. He won a ton of World Series and a, a, a good number of pennants, too. He's by this time the manager of the Boston Red Sox, and he decides to start a journeyman reliever by the name of Denny Galehouse, who everybody thinks is going to be. Everybody thinks it's going to be Mel Parnell, who is the ace of the Red Sox staff, but. Gale House Parnell beaten the Indians three times that year, by the way. Yeah. And everybody thought it was going to be him. Gale House is a righty. Uh, Parnell is a lefty. And McCarthy decides that he's going to go with righty because he thinks that the, with the wind blowing out to left field, that the elements are against the left hander. And Parnell does not realize till he gets to the game that he's not pitching, that Gale House is pitching. His teammates are demoralized. Like you said, it's it's maybe it's tied early on, but it's it's never really a close game. McCarthy is forever second guessed for the starting of this Denny Gale House in this one game playoff. Indians win and they go to the World Series against the Boston Braves. And this is the only one of these, by the way. This is the only American League uh, playoff game. That, that happened in this era, you know, in the original eight team era. Um, interestingly, both leagues, because if you're thinking about three years later, uh, the Giants and Dodgers finished tied and they played a three game series. I know where you're going with this. I th- would have thought like I remember when I first read about this, not this time, but years ago, I was like, oh, did they change the rules in that couple of years? Each league had a different standard for it. So the AL would only play a one game playoff and the NL would play a three game playoff as they did in 1951. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking there was definitely one of these in 62 in the national league, um, in the national league. Yeah. Which was always, um, and that was also the giants and the Dodgers. I don't know. Had there ever been, has there ever been one of the, I don't know if I could pull it up, uh, Real quick, um, to see okay, four, yeah, so 46, 46 Cardinals and Dodgers, and this one in 40, oh, 59 also, too. The Dodgers are involved in basically every single one of mm-hmm. these in the National League. 59, uh, the Dodgers beat the Braves in two straight games, um, to go to the World Series, and then they beat the Dodgers or they beat the Giants in a two out of three. That's that one actually ends, I think. That was that the one that ends on a game, uh. A, a walk off walk. I could, could be confusing that with another one. Yeah. And then I guess by, by the time you get to divisional play, everybody's just doing one game, but yeah, th- this is the only ever American league pennant one game tiebreaker where the winner goes to the world series. Mm-hmm. So they head to that world series. We mentioned they're going to take on the Boston Braves who are uh, a little bit of a surprise to be there, I guess. Um, 
you know, it's been the Dodgers the year before it had been the, when did the, this was the Braves first pennant since 1914, right? Yeah. Braves first since 14 and the Indians first since 20. Yeah. And this is the last one for the Braves in Boston. They, they leave Boston only about what, only about five, six years later. Yeah. They're, they're, they're gone five years later. Um, the series as they did back then rotated year to year. So the first, uh, the first two games were held at Braves field in Boston. Um, and if you want to stop me on any of these, you can, but, uh, Game one is a is a one nothing Braves win, and then game two is a four to one Cleveland win. So they split the first two games in Boston. No off days. Yeah, and I don't think they were doing that every single game, every single season. I think I think it would have been particularly difficult to do that for the St. Louis series because that was more mm. than a one day train ride, and St. Louis was in it. For, you know, 42, 43, 44, 46. But I guess Cleveland and Boston were considered close enough together that they didn't need any off days. So you'd you'd finish up a game, you know, late afternoon and then travel at night and get to the other city and play a game the next day. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, that's still rough, but it's not uh, at least it wasn't like when they were going back and forth every game or something like that, like they did in the NBA back in the uh, back of the day in the playoff series. So they head to. They head back to Cleveland for the next three games. Again, it's a series. The series is tied at one Um, in game three. The Indians win two to nothing again behind Gene Bearden. Um, No home runs. It's the third straight game. There has yet to be a home run in the series. Um, So the Indians take a two to one lead Saturday, October 9th. The Indians win two to one. Uh, again, there's there's home runs in this game, one by Larry Doby for the Indians and one by Marv Rickert for the uh, Braves. But it is a two to one affair and the Indians are now up three games to one and on the doorstep of their second world championship and first in 28 years. couple of things. Johnny Sane who is uh, part of the famous uh, spawn insane duo of the Boston Braves uh, defeats Bob Feller one to nothing in game one Feller is, is almost unhittable, but the Braves manage to squeak across a run when the Indians do not. And the Braves are hoping that Sane continues to pitch well until darkness, because apparently there was a rule in those days that any game that began in day could not be finished under the lights which I don't know what exactly. Oh, interesting. The, yeah. You, if you started a game as a day game without the lights, you couldn't finish it up under the lights. I don't know. Another one of those rules. I don't know how, how long it lasts for, but it lasts or it, it's in effect here. The other thing is that the Indians with Feller pitching so well in a loss in game one, and then with victories in game two, games two, three, and four, they get uh, three really excellent pitch, four really excellent pitching performances, so much so that by the time game five rolls around in Cleveland, they have not had to use their bullpen at all. And that means that nobody in the Indian bullpen, and that includes Satchel Page, nobody has gotten into the game in relief for Cleveland by the time the game five rolls around. 
So game five, it's Sunday, October the 10th, 1948. Um, 86,288th is the reported attendance I see here. They broke the record that was set the day before. Obviously, the fans are there expecting to at least have a chance to see. First of all, it's going to be the last game of the year in Cleveland one way or another, but also it's, you know, they have a chance to see Cleveland win a championship. Boston gets three runs in the first inning. They're off of four to one off of Feller. It's Warren Spahn against Bob Feller is the pitching matchup. It's four to one in the third inning. Um, The Indians then get four runs in the bottom of the fourth and briefly take a five to four lead. Boston ties it up in the sixth at five. And then in the seventh, Boston gets six runs to take an 11 to five lead, which holds up as the final. I'm sure you'll have some comments on this, but this is also a game that the actually Warren Spahn didn't start the game. He pitched in relief. He got the win, but he pitched in relief by Satchel page did get into the game. So he was the first black pitcher to take the mound in world series history. I think he pitched like a third or two thirds of an inning, two thirds of an inning, I believe. So not a, uh, you know, not a very long appearance, but the Indians uh, miss out on their chance to wrap it up at home and head back to Boston. Now needing one win to win the championship. And that's exactly right. Page is the first black player to appear in uh, first black pitcher to appear in a, uh, World Series game does not give up any runs, does get a balk called on him for wiggling his fingers at one point. And if you listen to the radio broadcast of that game, which is still available, Mel Allen, who's the great Yankee radio play by play broadcaster, is doing the game. And he talks about just before Page comes in about how this tremendous ovation is coming. Fans are chanting for Page to go in the game. And so it's it certainly doesn't diminish some of the the vitriol and the racism that that guys, you know, Jackie Robinson most prominently faced. But Satchel Page, at least, was he? They loved him in Cleveland. They they wanted him in the game all the time. So he was he was beloved by the fans in Cleveland, um, and they wanted to see him in the game. And he gets this just tremendous ovation in in forty eight in Game Five when he goes in the game. And like you said. They lose. They got to go back to Boston for a game six. Uh, Sort of another good game uh, in game six. Cleveland wins it four to three. Yep. They're up four to one. Um, They get two runs in the sixth and then one in the eighth to go up four to one. In the bottom of the eighth, the Braves get a bases loaded, uh, load the bases. They get a sack fly. They get a double. It's four to three. But then uh, Bearden comes or continues in in the ninth, gets the throws a excuse me throws a um, scoreless ninth. They win the game four to three, and the Indians have their world championship and to date last world championship. Couple of quick sort of um, I, I don't know if you'd want to call them cultural notes. This series, much like the previous one, is being broadcast on national television. In a year, the number of television sets has almost quadrupled. 
from 150,000 to, to 38, <laughs> 150,000 to 550,000. The Indians uh, win game four uh, behind a really strong pitching performance by a pitcher, but they win the game two to one uh, behind a really good game by, by a pitcher by the name of Steve Gromack, who gives up only one run and seven hits in a complete game of, of nine innings and Larry Doby uh, homers off a of scene in the third inning to, um, and that's I think that's probably that's, that's the second run of the game for the Indians. And that's enough to, to win the game two to one. There's a picture of Gromack and Doby with get uh, basically in an embrace uh, in the locker room. And that's considered a sort of a famous picture because the, you know, it's, it's too black or it's a black and a white player embracing each other in the, in the wake of the, um, the game four victory. It shows how Doby had, had come to be accepted by, by most of his teammates. And, and that's sort of, uh, that's the 48 Indians. Like I said, Vec as a result of a divorce has to sell the team, um, a couple of years later before moving on to St. Louis and then to a couple of stints in Chicago, they stay good. Uh, Boudreaux lasts as manager for three, two more years, um, 89 and 65 and 49 behind both Boston and New York, 92 win team in 1950, 51 uh, Boudreaux is gone, but he's replaced by Boudreaux actually goes and plays his last season with the Red Sox, uh, not as manager, but just as a shortstop. In 51, uh, under Al Lopez, who was another Hall of Fame manager, they win 93 games in both 51 and 52, 53 and 92. And then in 54, they have this this record breaking 111 win season uh, where they and then unfortunately for them, they go and get swept by the New York Giants uh, in the in the 54 World Series and don't make it back to the postseason for another uh, another 40, 40 plus years. Yeah, watch. um Watch the first five. If you're looking for a fill-in of what happened with the Indians between 1954 and, let's say, 1988, you can watch the first few minutes of Major League and uh, get a sense for what happened there. But they're damn good through 55. They're a 90-plus win team, second place most years, basically all through uh, up until the mid-50s with Lopez as the manager, Doby, Bob Lemon. Um, they bring in another... Uh, future hall of fame pitcher and early win. Who's one of the, one of the key pitchers of the 54 team. So before they go into this 40 year drought, they, um, they have, uh, they have some really, really good years in the fifties. Yeah. And they 51, 52, 53, they're a second place team behind those Yankee teams that won the championship every year. You mentioned 54 where they, you know, break all the records for, you know, wins for an American league team. Um, I wanted to point out, by the way, this 48 team, and I can't find who was ahead of them, but fourth lowest team batting average ever for a world series champion were the 48 Indians. Um, I think the 1906 hitless wonder white Sox were one of those teams, but it wasn't all teams from that long ago. Um, so yeah, the Indians and, and, and just to one more thing, and I, I think, you know, this, but it fits in well, and I think you'd appreciate it. So, you know, they get, they get good again in the mid nineties, go to the world series in 95, they lose, they go to the world series in 97, they lose. 
heartbreakingly in 97. They have a few down, you know, years and then they're on their upswing again and they go to the World Series in 2016. And it's this great series against the Cubs who also have a 40 year longer drought. But before that series started, there was a video of. So we talked about how the Braves or the last game, you know, the Indians win game six of the World Series in 1948 at Braves Field in Boston. Well, Braves Field in Boston is now Nickerson Field uh, on the campus of Boston University. The soccer uh, stadium, for the most part, I believe, is what it's mostly used for. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. They did a video, and the funny thing is, I think it's a turf field, so they had to find like the slight bit of it that's dirt. Um, there was a video of BU, uh, I forget, I think it was the BU mascot or something like that. It was, it was Rhett the Terrier, yeah, taking dirt from that field, which was the you know, it's still like the shell of this of what Braves Field was, and sending it to the Indians for luck as like this is the field with which you know, where you won your last. World Series. So we're sending you this for luck. And, you know, that World Series obviously was didn't go the Indians way, but it's still one of the greatest game sevens you'll ever see. But, um, you know, here we are still 75 years later and the Indians. I, I looked it up at the from the to reference it from the beginning. The second longest drought is technically the Texas Rangers, because when they came into the league in 1961, they haven't won a World Series since then. And then there's a few teams who've never won one. But yeah, the of teams who've been around longer than the expansion era, the next closest one is the 79 Pirates, which is 31 years later. So the Indians by a lot now have the longest World Series drought. And, you know, when when did the, the Curse of the Bambino thing start being a huge deal in the 80s and 90s? Probably after Buckner, right? Yeah, after Buckner. So the, So it was 68 years when the Buckner thing happened for the Red Sox. The Cubs thing probably became a huge deal in the 70s or 80s. Like the Indians are basically at as long now in terms of it being a big deal. And, you know, they're 10 years away from how long the Red Sox drought was. And, you know, they're there. It seems so much more recent, but it's getting, you know, it's getting up there into that into that air that the Red Sox and the Cubs and the White Sox were in. It really is. It, it very much is. Um so why don't we um why don't we transition here to the the Cleveland Browns and I get two things. Um also in 1948, the AHL Cleveland Barons. I was just about to mention this. They did win their league, the Calder Cup, which is the AHL is still the minor league for the um, for the NHL, the highest minor league. So the Cleveland Barons did win the Calder Cup. Um, and the only other team I could find professionally that's anywhere near what we're talking about. And I didn't look. Did Cleveland have any kind of Negro League team in the, in the 40s? They did. Oh, what was the I didn't look this one up team. The closest pro basketball team I could find was the NBL Toledo Jeeps, who did not have any kind of a season. They finished in like fifth and they were below 500. But and Toledo is nowhere near Cleveland, but it's in Ohio. So that was the closest I could get there. Did they play against the Red Man Tobaccos? I don't think I, I can check. I'll check the 1948 NBL standings for you. Okay. So there actually was a Negro League team, the Cleveland Buckeyes, uh, in the mid-40s who won 
two Negro American League championships in 45 and 47, and then a Negro League World Series title in uh, 1945. I think I've looked at them. I think I actually have their team in uh, in Stratomatic Baseball. I think I actually have their cards as one of the Negro League Legends teams that I have. I don't believe there's anybody particularly noteworthy on this late mid to late forties Cleveland Buckeyes team. Yeah. The, the Quincy trope was on the team. Who's a, some people think that he's a Negro leaguer who should be in the hall of fame. And then there's a center fielder guy by the name of Sam Jethro, who later had a very, uh, not, not, I guess not that, that short. He, he played three full years with the Boston Braves in the 1950s and was, uh, was uh national league uh, rookie of the year in 1950. So yeah, n- not necessarily in 48, but the, there was a good uh, solid Negro league team in the, um, in the Indian in, in Cleveland in the mid 1940s. I looked up the uh, Ohio state Buckeyes football team in 48 to see if they did anything special. They did not, by the way, the 47, 48 NBL uh, Toledo was 22 and 37. No red man tobaccos in that league, but you did have the Sheboygan Redskins. You had the Indianapolis Kautskis. You had the Flint Dow ACs who managed to go eight and 52. Um, and then the Anderson Duffy Packers, among other luminaries. Um, so, yes. that and, and Toledo, I think, is like hundreds of miles from Cleveland. I don't think it's anywhere near Cleveland, but it's the closest thing I could find from a pro basketball standpoint. So a little bit about the Cleveland Browns. They're a member of the All-America Football Conference. We did a whole episode about a year ago on expansion and rival leagues in the um, in, in, uh, we did one on basketball a few years back, and then we did one just last year on, on professional football. The, 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 the Browns are a part of the all American football conference, the AAFC, the AAFC is the brainchild of a gentleman by the name of Arch Ward, who is also as a sports writer. He's also known for, for being the guy who came up with the idea for the major league baseball all-star game in the early 1930s. And he also um, was key in the founding of the golden gloves, the, the amateur boxing tournament. And again, we did an episode on this, so I don't want to revisit it too, too much, but the vision for the AFC is that it's going to be the first sort of truly national professional football league. It, the, for for basically the whole life of the NFL, it had been focused mostly in the Midwest, a lot of teams in Ohio and Illinois and Michigan, and then on the East Coast, Pennsylvania, New York, a little bit in, in New England, and then south to, you know, to Baltimore. They placed a team in Florida in the AFC, although by 1948, that team is gone. They put two teams on the West Coast, the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Dons. But the dominant team, the team that wins all four AAFC titles, all four AAFC championship games, is the Cleveland Browns, coached by their namesake, the legendary coach Paul Brown, much like the Indians featuring a whole wide variety of future Hall of Famers. Yeah, and the Browns are really the only reason that the All-America Football Conference stays afloat more than, you know, 
the one season that a lot of these other leagues lasted. Would you say that is the case? Most likely is that without the, the Browns and the dominance and profile of the Browns, that league probably would have been dead by 1948. I would say probably so. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons why the Browns are so good is the, um, is the presence of Paul Brown, who had been the coach at Ohio state prior to the war. He had gone on then to coach at the great lakes Naval center, uh, during his time of military service and put up a really solid, uh, record there and then took over the Cleveland Browns going into the 1946 guy. He's an Ohio guy. He is, um, I believe born and raised in Ohio. He'd previously coached at, uh, Massillon High School in the mm. um in in the high school ranks the Massillon Tigers who if you've ever heard our colleague George Bazika who's from that that area uh, who's also the president of the Pro Football Researchers Association he talks a lot about the Massillon Tigers and what a powerhouse they are in that part of uh, that part of the country in that part of Ohio in high school football so he's a guy who's done his time he's coached and then they decide they're going to bring him in to um to coach this team um in 1946 the Cleveland Browns and I guess I, I guess we should talk about some of the all-time greats that are on this team also yeah and and for the record the Browns thing wasn't he didn't come in and say like oh, I insist the team be named after me I believe there was a contest held uh, where people were allowed to write in to the newspaper to come up with a name. He had, what did he want to call it? The Panthers, I believe was his preferred name. That might be right. And yeah. Browns ended up winning because of him. So it, I, hopefully this is a place you're okay with starting because it works in. So you mentioned him coaching at that military um, base, you know, during the war, one of his star players there, the player that this is where he met Marion Motley was, was at this military uh, base where he was coaching the team. And Marion Motley was one of his uh, star players. And again, this is, it's important to point out that this is during world war two. So obviously pre Jackie Robinson and Motley is, is an African-American and Brown uses him as actually a, a, a championship game. They're going to be playing that, Motley technically could have been discharged from the military before this game, but sort of voluntarily stayed in so that he could play in this game. And they used the draw play, which was kind of a new invention at the time to sort of dominate this game with Marion Motley. Um, and when Brown goes to the Cleveland Browns, you know, after the war, he brings in Marion Motley. There's a, a, a modern day NFL writer named Mike Lombardi, who some people are, are familiar with. And he just came out with a book called fifth called football done. Right. And he has a list of his top 100 NFL players of all time. And he lists Marion Motley as one of the hundred greatest players of all time. The athletic did something similar when they came out with their best hundred football players of all time about two years ago. One of the other things is Motley, in addition to being a really, really good running back, just a power guy. And there's this famous video clip of him, in black and white, obviously running and having his helmet fall off. And he, in addition to being one of the greatest, you know, running backs of his time, a fullback, he also is uh, 
considered one of the best linebackers at the time period during this time of of two-way football. And you're right, Lombardi had remembered, sorry, Paul Brown had remembered him from his time at um, Great Lakes Navy. Similarly, another Hall of Famer, Bill Willis, who is the the nose guard, the middle guard on this Browns team, the other uh, African-American Hall of Famer on the team, Brown had coached him at Ohio State and the story of the reintegration, there's four players in 1946 who reintegrate professional football. There's Willis and Motley with the Browns and the AAFC. And then there's um, Kenny Washington. And I forget who the fourth one is in the Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams had actually moved from Cleveland in 19 after the 45 season. And as a condition of playing at the L.A. Coliseum, they're required to reintegrate or to integrate, I should say, their team. The two guys, including Kenny Washington, don't do a lot for the Rams. They have a couple good years, but they don't go on to Hall of Fame careers the way Willis and Motley do with the Browns. But I want to talk a little bit about the story of the reintegration of the Browns in 19. 19- 46 and I'll put this in the show notes this is from a um this is from a store I uh this is from a biography of Paul Brown um Willis um who had played for Brown at Ohio State like I said calls Brown and asks him that there's a possibility of catching on with this new Cleveland team Brown says I'll give you a call and let you know Willis um thinks that Brown is just uh, blowing him off he ends up making an agreement to go play uh, with a team in Montreal in the Canadian Football League. But then a reporter with the Columbus Dispatch in Columbus, Ohio, a guy who has an interesting name. The guy's name is actually Paul Horning. And when I first read this, I thought <laughs> it was a typo in the book. But then I realized that um, that it actually is not. This is actually the guy's name is Paul Horning. He convinces Brown or convinces Willis to go to camp uninvited he he shows up at shows up at brown's training camp and uh paul brown sees willis and says do you think you can still play football and willis says i think so and uh, paul brown says uh go get a uniform and uh and let us know and then um the next day he shows up and uh he he makes his way onto the team and then um marion motley um, himself, like you said, had expressed interest. He was working in a steel mill and playing semi-pro baseball. And he gets a call from um, a guy by the name of John Brickles, uh, at who's one of Mot- uh, one of Brown's assistants at Paul Brown's instructions. And Motley shows up. People think that probably the thing is that he wants to have two black players on the team for, you know, two, two guys can room together, that whole type of thing. And uh, Brown says to all of his players, he says, you know, doesn't specifically mention black teammates or doesn't specifically mention race, but he says, um, if you can get along with your teammates or if you can't get along with your teammates, you won't be here. And the uh, Motley and Willis and a couple other guys uh, lead the Browns to the AAFC title in 46, lead them to another title in 47. And uh, going into the 1948 season, they are clearly the cream of the crop of the AAFC. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of the other guys, other future hall of famers on that team, but that is the story of the Cleveland Browns and the two great black uh, future hall of famers that they bring into the team uh, going into the first year in 1946. 
Yeah, you mentioned 46. They go 12 and 2. They win the championship over the New York Yankees, 14 to 9. 47, they're 12, 1 and 1 again against the Yankees in the championship. They win that one 14 to 3. So, first two years there of the AAFC, they are 24, 3 and 1 and have won both championship games. So there are seven future Hall of Famers on this team in the 1948 season. We already mentioned um, Motley. We mentioned Bill Willis. They have a guy by the name of Lou Groza, who is a tackle and also a kicker. Groza is an incredible story in that he is on the team from 1946 all the way until 1967. He takes a year off in 1940. 60 uh, for for one reason or another. Maybe he temporarily retires. Gross is in the Hall of Fame. He's on the he's a nine time pro bowler. Eventually, he stops being a tackle and is just a kicker. He's considered one of the great kickers of the the pre soccer style. He's one of he's probably the greatest ever um, traditional kicker where they just stand there and take a step up and kick it as opposed to the the soccer style where they take the three steps and kick it, you know, that everybody everybody sees and everybody does now but Lou Groza plays with the Browns all the way until 1967 after Paul Ground is gone until he is himself is 43 years of age he ends up winning uh four NFL titles and four AFC titles with the Browns he is on the team all the way up until the the Jim Brown era and even after that probably the guy who sees more Cleveland Browns history in over 20 years with the Cleveland Browns. So he is on the team as the, the starting uh, left tackle and also uh, the kicker of the team. And then they have a, a center by the name of Frank Gatsky, who is a future hall of famer. And then I want to close by talking about the passing attack, because this is probably the first team with a modern passing attack. And that includes Two future Hall of Fame receivers in Max Speedy and Dante Lavelli. And then Otto Graham, who is considered still to this day, maybe the greatest one of the, you know, 10 or so greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. When you see lists of greatest quarterbacks of all time, even today, you see Brady, you see Montana, you see. Um, you see Peyton Manning, obviously, and you'll see, you know, some of these guys got Unitas and Staubach. Usually the farthest, some some lists you'll see Sammy Baugh, but usually the farthest back you'll see a guy consistently is Otto Graham, who plays 10 years with the Cleveland Browns in 46 to 55, is in a title game every year in either the in either the AAFC or either the or the NFL and is considered to be even to this day one of the best quarterbacks of all time. You know, he he's the first one that they will consider in any degree a modern quarterback. You know, they're obviously not going to take somebody from the 30s and and you know, where most of it was still running the kind of offense that wouldn't, you know, where basically it was just a rugby style offense almost for lack of a better term. You know, and and obviously if you were to watch film of Otto Graham throwing the ball in the in the 40s, it wouldn't you know, you wouldn't confuse it with the modern offense, but it still resembles it more closely than anything before it did in terms of being a part of an offensive game plan and not just something you did 
twice a game to throw the other team off balance or if it was fourth and 28 and you needed to try to do something or you were going to lose the game. Something else that's interesting about Graham is that he is one of only two players and you won't always necessarily see him even listed this way, but he's one of only two players to win a uh, a championship in two of the four major North American sports. He plays with the, and I just want to make sure I get this right. He plays with the, um, the, uh, Rochester Royals of the National Basketball League uh, in the night early 1946, the 1945-46 season, which is, I guess, it's kind of like the before the NBA has truly started. So it's really mm-hmm. kind of a question of how you consider this. But they defeat the Sheboygan, the aforementioned Sheboygan Redskins to win the National Basketball League title in <laughs> in March of 1946. And a lot of people consider him one of the only two uh, players to win championships in two of the major four professional sports. The other one who's a little bit more legit is uh, Gene Conley, who is a pitcher for the Braves, uh, the Milwaukee Braves in 1947 and is also a, a role player on the, uh, the the red R back Celtics teams of the the 1950s. The other guy who who com- who comes close, obviously, is uh, is is Deion Sanders, who <clears throat> damn near wins a World Series in '92 with the Braves and has a, a would have been World Series MVP if, if they had won that World Series, and then also um you know wins a couple couple Super Bowls with San Francisco and with Dallas. But Otto Graham is really kind of the anchor of this this modern day passing attack. He and Paul Brown create the modern T formation um uh T formation offense which is sort of what we know of today with a quarterback and and running backs behind him and ends or wide receivers split out. And he's got two Hall of Fame receivers in Dante Lavelli. Dante Lavelli who has been in he's known as Mr. Clutch and uh, Brown says that Lavelli has one of the strongest pair of hands he's ever seen. When he went up for a pass with a defender, you could always, almost always count on him uh, coming back with the ball. Lavelli, who's on the Browns for this entire run, he's with them from 46 until 56. And I just want to look at his, uh, his stats real quick, but he is one of the, one of the great early receivers of the, the forties and fifties, you know, number never never receives for a thousand yards but numbers that are very very impressive for the time being and he is elected into the pro football hall of fame in 1975 his counterpart is proud his counterpart counterpart is mac speedy uh mac with an a c m-a-c uh s-p-e-e-d-i-e who especially during the early days is probably actually a better receiver than Dante Lavelli in the AAFC days, Max Speedy does get over a thousand yards twice, 1146 in 1947 and then uh, 1028 in 1949. Uh, The year we're talking about 1948, he does lead the league in receptions with 58. He's named an all pro uh, and only, but only uh, has 816 receiving yards the difference between speedy and lavelli is that speedy 
leaves the team after the 1952 season after some conflicts with Paul Brown goes to Canada and plays in Canadian professional football for a few years before hanging it up. And it's said that he and Brown don't speak for decades until um, one or both of them pass away. And, and there was always kind of a rumor that, that Brown's influence had kept speedy out of the hall of fame. Speedy is actually not elected into the hall of fame until 2020 in the hundredth year anniversary of the NFL, when they, they set up this special committee to sort of sweep through, you know, going all the way back to the twenties, try and get some more of these guys in. And Max Speedy is probably finally elected to the hall of fame in that year, but he was widely considered just as good, if not better than his counterpart, Dante Lavelli in the, especially in the forties, especially AF, AFC days, but it takes uh, Speedy all the way until 2020 to get into the to the Hall of Fame. One other interesting tidbit I had here revolving around personnel going into the 48 season. Um, have, did you know about uh, this with the quarterback, the uh, quarterback they brought in very, very briefly before the 48 season? You know, it sounds familiar, but why don't you remind me? So, And I'm seeing a little bit of conflicting reports, but so why a tittle? was signed by the Browns in the off season between, you know, before the 48 season, uh, I guess right after the 47 season, I'm seeing an interview from YA Tittle from a few years back. He said, he told me the Browns thought auto Graham would only play one more year. And then I could learn for him from one season. It wasn't true about auto. Of course, he played for many years after that. Tittle was getting ready to report to Cleveland's camp when the AFC commissioner notified him he was going to the Baltimore team instead. He decided he wanted more balance in the league, so he took several players from the Browns and the Yankees and then sent them to Baltimore. And by the way, while I'm reading this interview, I I have to say, like, because it's a Q&A with Y. Tittle from 2009 and they're clearly trying to bait him to say bad things about the current game and he won't and i've always heard he's a real classy guy but like this he's like oh what do you think of the players today and he's like oh they're fast they're great athletes so like good for him for not taking that bait there but you know so i guess technically maybe cleveland traded him away but it was done in a way that it was clear that they didn't have much of a choice because they needed to redistribute the talent um and Y.A. Tittle uh, will go down as the second biggest uh, acquisition football-wise from Cleveland to Baltimore. (laughs) The first being the team itself. Higher team, yes. Um, The other guy who's on this team as a rookie is uh, Ara Parsegian. That's right, yes. The future head coach of Notre Dame is on this team, and he, like a lot of Future coaches, Bill Walsh, among others, learns at the feet of Paul Brown during this time frame. And I do have to say the one thing about that that's interesting to me, and I'm trying to pull up. Exa- you said he was a rookie in 1948. Correct. So he was born in 1923. As I just looked it up, he was born in 1923. In that movie, which takes place in the early 70s, Rudy they portray him as if he's 90 years old. <laughs> he would have been what? 49. Something like that. Yeah. He's basically your age in that movie. I'm 40, not 49, but fine. 
but yeah, don't, 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 you know, you get the impression that he's like, when they say like, oh, Arab Parsegian quit in that, in Rudy, like, they're like, oh, well, he's probably about to die based on the way he's portrayed in that movie. <laughs> and he wouldn't, he wouldn't have even been 50 at the time. But anyway, that's, that's a digression. But yeah, I, when I saw that name, obviously that's not a name a lot of people have, Arrow Parsegian. So it kind of blew me away when I saw that. I was like, oh, wow, I, I did not know he was on that team. They finished with a 14 and 0 record. It, it's worth noting that the, the AAFC, at least in this season, actually plays a 14 game season, whereas the NFL is at a 12 game season all the way until the 1960 season. But they had been. They'd been 12 and two. They'd been 12, one and one the year before they go 14 and zero in 1948. Paul Brown calls this the best team that he's ever coached. Um, Graham Lavelli. I'm sorry, Graham Speedy and Motley lead the AFC in the three major offensive categories, passing, rushing and receiving the second base, the second best team is probably the the fellow uh, Western Conference team, the San Francisco 49ers. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. They're 12 and two. The East is comparatively weak. In fact, the Baltimore Colts and the Buffalo Bills uh, tie for the Eastern Conference championship at seven and seven and have to settle it in a settle it in a, uh, a, a one game playoff, which the Bills win. A lot of people really do feel that the 49ers are the the second best team in the the All-America football conference that year. And I'm just going to I have a book here that's a really good book. I actually just read this while I was on vacation. It's pro football championships before the Super Bowl. And it tells the story of all the, the whether it's the NFL championship games pre-Super Bowl or the AFC championship games. Um the two teams that played that this is the Browns and the 49ers on uh, November 14th and 1920 and uh, November 28th, they were 12 and two. Um, they had, the Browns had defeated them in games uh, in November by seven and three points. So a little bit the other way. And not only would the Browns not have been the AFC Western division champions, but they would not have even won the um they they would not have been undefeated. They would not have finished with that 14 and 0 record. And other than the 72 Dolphins, they are the only other professional football team to go undefeated and then go on and win a championship game. We all know that the Dolphins lost, or I'm sorry, that the Patriots lost to the Giants in 07, another subject of a Hello Old Sports episode. And we also, um, I believe it was the Bears in like 41 or 42 were undefeated and then lost in the NFL title game. There's one more interesting anecdote before we get to a little summary of the 48 title game. Branch Rickey is part of a group that purchased the football Dodgers in the AAFC in 1948. And he sort of brings a very baseball mentality to things. And he convinces uh, the Cleveland Browns that they should go on the road for three games in eight days. Mm -hmm. And so in the 1948 season, the Cleveland Browns week 11 to 13, they actually played four road games in a row to finish the season. But those are weeks 11, 12 and 13. Yeah. And I mean, I don't even know. Can you consider these weeks? If you think of it, 
about it. No, yeah. And if you if you look on Pro Football Reference, both games, the last two games are both listed as being week 14. (laughs) So and this is impressive. They beat the New York Yankees 21 to nine in New York, and then they go all the way to L.A. for a Thursday game, which they don't even make teams do that now. And they beat them by 31 to 14. And then three days, and that was Thanksgiving Day, uh, the 25th in Los Angeles. And then uh, three days later, they beat the San Francisco 49ers in the aforementioned. So not only do they beat the 49ers, you know, the second best team in the league, they beat them in a road game, having played two previous games over the last six or seven days. And then they go back to New York and a week later, they uh, they beat the Brooklyn Dodgers. So, yeah, they're basically on the road for, you know, it's it's only two weeks, but it's it's four games that they that they're on the road for. Um, and and- one other thing I, I wanted to bring up because I was just looking at this and I could you know, I, on Sunday, October 10th, I was 19- just about to I was just about to mention this. Yeah, I'm trying to the Brown game must have been at night. It was at 830 at night. They they moved it to 830 at night because there was an Indians World Series game against Boston earlier in the day at Municipal Stadium. Yeah. And, and think about it. If they had won that game, they would have won the World Series. They would have won the World Series and then had to clear out so that uh, they could have played a football game five hours later on the field. But anyway, that's a digression. But yeah, they 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 were on the road three times in eight days, which uh I don't think will happen anytime again soon. The players are annoyed enough not having to play every fourth day. Exactly. Or once a year on four days rest. So they go to the 48 title game against the aforementioned, the Buffalo Bills. The game is played in Municipal Stadium, and, you know, just as the World Series had been the, you know, about two months earlier. That it's not a particularly close game. It is 49 to seven. They get touchdowns from uh, uh, Jones, um, Dub Jones. Uh, they get a rushing touchdown from Dub Jones. They, they get a fumble recovery and then a, a passing touchdown by uh, Dub Jones, who's the, the left hat, halfback, Edgar Jones. Uh, Motley runs for a TD. Buffalo finally scores one, but then Motley runs for another TD and another TD after that. And then by that point, they get one more touchdown on an interception return in the fourth quarter. Groza kicks seven extra points. Paul Brown calls this the greatest team that he's ever coached. And uh, they they kind of ride off into the sunset. If if nothing else, they're be- they're definitely the best team in in AAFC history. And really one of the greatest teams, even when the NFL a couple of years ago did its hundred greatest teams of all time, this 48 Browns team, even though they were in the AAFC and the NFL doesn't really like, even now they don't really like to acknowledge the AAFC. It's not the same as with the AFL where they've sort of embraced it. They kind of like to shove the AAFC off to one side, but this 48 Browns team is a team that can't be ignored. And one of the reasons why this Browns dynasty can't be ignored is that they joined the NFL in 1950 and everybody thinks, and we talked about this a little bit in our previous episode with some of the things that were said by some of the ownership and some of the, 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 the leadership. I think the commissioner says, you know, it's paraphrased, but it's basically like call us when you get a football. 
they the 1950 season, their first year in the NFL, with basically the same team as they'd had in the AFC, they beat the defending uh, champion Eagles 35 to 10 on opening night. It's a Saturday night game in Philadelphia. They beat them 35 to 10. They go on to uh, finish with a 10 and two record. They defeat the LA Rams who had had a record setting offense in 1950. They go on to defeat them. I actually guessed it a couple of years ago on Dana Augusta's historically speaking sports podcast to talk about this game. It's, it's, you know, this, this 1950, the, the Philly game. And so the fact that they make it to six championship games in their first six years in the NFL, I think they win three titles in those six years. I think they win the title in 50, 54 and 55, if I'm not mistaken. So for that reason, we're kind of able to look at those championships of the forties in a much different light because they did so much once they got to the NFL. And just since you invoke those Eagles teams, one thing that I thought was interesting, um, the Eagles had won the NFL championship and, but you know, we're not doing great. You know, this is still the forties and obviously the NFL is a bigger deal than the AFC, but the NFL is not the NFL. It would be 10 or 15 years later, even let alone now uh, the owner of the Eagles proposed a championship game or series with the Browns. So this is the owner of the NFL champion proposing a championship, some sort of championship tournament series, whatever with a lesser leagues champion was reprimanded by commissioner Burt Bell and informed that no such thing would be taking place. Um, 1949, the Browns win again. The the AFC by then is down to seven teams, so they go down to 12 games because, like you mentioned, they were playing a 14-game season because they were doing a double-round robin, basically like soccer leagues do where you play everybody twice. So that's why they went down to 12 games. The Browns won again. Their overall AAFC record, 52-4-3 in the four years the league exists. They are basically the entire reason that there's a merger. The Browns and the 49ers are accepted into the NFL. The Colts are very briefly accepted, not those Colts, but a team that folded almost immediately. And a few years later, there was a Colts. Um, the I mean, sort of immediately, they thought there was a, a mistake. They, they regretted that they accepted the Colts instead of the Bills. They should have taken uh, the Buffalo they, team. Yep. And then technically the Dons merged with the Rams, although not really. Uh, and then the other teams were folded. Um, interestingly enough, you mentioned this 12 and 0, um, or this 14 and 0 team and the undefeated, and whether it would be recognized or not. I see a, uh, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown wrote a letter uh, to the NFL commissioner asking him to acknowledge basically to consider the pro football hall of fame acknowledges this team as an undefeated team, but the NFL doesn't, which is interesting. And you know, when I saw, as I was looking through this, you know, when there was a lot of articles from February of 08, I actually found Mm -hmm. an article. Yeah, that's, I saw that too. Yeah. Unfortunately it's paywalled, but there's an article in the New York daily news on February 3rd, 2008, which was the day of Super Bowl 42 when the Giants played the Patriots, Basically saying, you know, uh, you know, we're going to we might have another team in the club by the end of tonight. But don't forget about the 48 Browns and all that. And then 
obviously the next day, the New York Daily News. I have the New York Daily News from the next day, and there's nothing in it about the 48 Browns, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, or or not unfortunately. But um, yeah, the uh, I just thought it was interesting that a lot of the articles were from around then. Um, so yeah, the Browns. You know, this was they were a, an unstoppable machine in the AAFC. They were, but this was the best team. It's you know you, I think. Like you said, given that they won right away in the NFL, people feel more comfortable. It, it's almost like I said with Page, where since he did well, albeit briefly at 42 in major league in the major leagues, you can quantify it. You can quantify how good this Browns team was because they kept doing it in the NFL. There might have been 10 teams in the NFL better than anyone else in the AAFC, but the Browns were better than anybody in the NFL. And I was wrong, by the way. The NFL Network actually does not include this team in their top 100. They have the 50 Browns there, mm. which is their first year in the NFL, and that's actually they're pretty high. They're they're 25th of all time, mm. and they've got some of the other teams. I think they've got uh, they got 54 in there, so they've got a couple of those. You know, the the Graham Motley, but mm-hmm. everybody sort of says that if you look at it, you know, if you, if you if you stipulate that every year should be taken equally. The team of the 40s was the better team. That's when, and that's certainly when Motley was probably at its best. It's when Max Speedy was at its best. And I, I was glad to see Speedy get his recognition for the Hall of Fame a couple of years, uh, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, entire documentaries have been done about the futility of Cleveland sports in the modern and even the, the not quite so modern era in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. And there's, there's a lot of stories there. And it also kind of, um, it couples up nicely, you know, story-wise with the decline of the economy and industry in the city in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but 50 late forties, 1948, not only was the city booming, but the 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 two teams in the two major league sports, really, the, I guess the hot NHL was around in those days too. But the two by far most popular sports, most popular professional sports in the country, Cleveland sat atop in 1948. Whether it was with legendary coaches, integration, you know, all time greats uh, with Feller, Graham, Motley, all these guys. So, you know, when we focus specifically on a city. On this show, it usually tends to be New York or or sometimes Philly, and we've you know you know some others at times. But Cleveland, nineteen forty eight, is a is a year to remember. Yeah, I think it's definitely a um, a cool little snapshot, and again, not one that you you hear a ton about. But um, you know, the Browns have obviously won since forty eight, although not since what was it sixty four was their last one. Sixty four, yeah. 64. 64 was it you know not since 64 obviously the indians still have not won um and cleveland went on that long drought that was broken by the cavaliers but um yeah they like you said it was a brief moment in time but they uh they were the center of power with the the two biggest professional sports in the country at the time and this came a little later this might not have necessarily been 48 but don shula played on these teams and studied under Paul Brown, Lou Saban, who, no, no relation to, to Nick Saban, but Lou Saban, who went on to coach the, the Buffalo bills and the Oakland Raiders in the AFL. Um, 
was um I'm sorry the yeah yeah the no he goes to the Patriots and the Bills Saban not the not the Raiders and the Bills so the you know Weep Eubank was an assistant on these teams went on to win uh, titles with the Colts and the Jets so lots of lots of figures had their formative years with the, with the Browns of the 1940s. Shula was there 51 and 52. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, hopefully we get some Cleveland listenership out of this one and ho- hope, you know, regardless of, of where you, where you are, uh, we hope you all enjoyed this one. And uh, as I've said before, next time we'll be back with something totally different. Uh, but until then I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye old sports. This podcast is part of the sports history network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sports Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to Sports historynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.